On June 1st, 2005, a guy by the name of Percy Aerosmith, one of the coolest names ever, by the way, uh, 105 years old, and his 100-year-old wife, Florence, celebrated their 80th wedding anniversary, which is really cool, but it's also sad that two weeks after that, Percy died. But the story uh, of, their, of their marriage is that uh, they met at their church in Hereford, England. He sang in the choir, and she was a Sunday school teacher. And according to the Guinness Book of World Record uh, folks, the couple held the record for the longest marriage and the oldest aggregate age of a married couple, 205 years old. Now, the Aerosmiths claimed that the key to their long marriage was this. Are you ready? You might want to take notes. Uh, not to go to sleep on an argument. They said they always kissed and held hands uh, at night before going to bed. Wouldn't it be nice if that was all you had to do, married couples? If you just be like, oh, okay, we just, we just make up before we go to bed, and then we'll be married for 80 years. Oh, it's so wonderful. Uh, not reality at all. And, and yet, isn't it funny that most of the time you ask somebody who's been married a really long time and they give you some answer like that? Because there's got to be more to staying married than just not going to bed uh, angry. That marriage takes work, right? Okay, a little bit. Marriage takes determination. It takes commitment. Uh, think about it this way. Your marriage will be the longest relationship that you will ever choose to be in. Unless the goal, anyway, right? The longest relationship you'll ever choose to be in. Now, I, I, w I want you to know, as we've been, this is week three of this series on marriage that we've been in. And here's what I have come to learn um, after 50 years. I am not the best or the wisest voice when it comes to marriage. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, that was a little, I cut a little deep. Uh, it, <laughs> here's, here's why, here's why that is um, true. Uh, my marriage has never really been a struggle. And I, let me clarify that a, a, a little bit. Um, Andy and I have had struggles over the last 31 years in our marriage. We've had struggles. We have had financial struggles when we planted um, real life. That was a big, uh, a big struggle. Um, when Trent was younger and very violent and, and aggressive and with three other children, that was, a, that was a, a struggle. As our adult kids or as our kids turn into adults and face their own challenges, that's a struggle. If you're a, a parent at, at times, you struggle with and for them. Um, but being married to her and staying married to her for the last 31 years has not been a struggle on my part. In fact, it's been um, one of the easier undertakings of my life. Uh, and and, and I, I don't, I'm, I'm not saying that just to make her feel good. I'm not trying to score any points for later today. I'm, I'm saying that because 
over the last 50 years in marriage counseling and meeting with, with people and couples who are facing struggle, I've realized that, that man, I've had it good. And, and, and some of you, maybe many of you t- today can't say that about your relationship, your, your, your marriage, or, or your situation. Um, I, so as I get older, I, I realize more, I think, that not everybody has had that same experience in, in their marriage. Marriage is a choice that you make, and it's, it's one that you have to keep making every day, right? And, and sometimes not just every day. Like, it's not just I get up in the morning and go, I'm going to stay married today. Um, but sometimes, if you're married to me anyway, it's probably more like moment by moment. Like, <laughs> gotta remi- every minute, I've got to remind myself, okay, I made a commitment. I've got I to stay married. Um, as followers of Jesus, whether your marriage is most often a, a challenge and a struggle or it's most often a, a joy... You've got to come to terms with the expectation that that your marriage as a follower of Jesus is to be a permanent relationship. That's the expectation. It might not be the reality, but it's the expectation. That it's not a temporary relationship. That on God's part and from God's perspective, marriage was never intended to be a temporary relationship thing. It was not meant to ever end until death. Like that's what we say, right? Until death do us part. And, and, and sometimes I've done a lot of, of weddings. I've performed a lot of weddings o- over the years. And I've got to be honest, there are times where I felt like we're going through the vows. <laughs> do you, <laughs> till death do you part. And sometimes I just don't believe it when they say it. For a lot of people, and I think certainly in our society today, marriage is a temporary thing. We say the words, but we don't really necessarily mean them. Or or we give ourselves some some grace, right? We make excuses for why it's not. We we live in a fallen and and a failing world. And, and you, you may very well, at some point in your life, face the devastation of divorce. Um, maybe you already have. Maybe a couple times you've had to go through that. The fundamental permanence of marriage is not lessened by its short-term nature in our society. So the fundamental permanence of, of marriage, as God designed it, isn't lessened by its short-term nature in our society. And, and I, I feel like, in fact, I, I, I told you last week, like, this is what we're going to talk about next Sunday. We're not going to talk about that today. Uh, or I'm going to push that off till, till next week. I just, as, as I was working on it this week and just going through my notes and everything, it's like, we really need to take some time and, and, and look at this. Uh, look at marriage. Um, uh, go back to Scripture and, and, and look at how God's plan uh, was. Um, and so I, I would argue that the less important marriage is to our culture, the more important marriage becomes to us as Christians. And, and I hope you'll see that as we look at some scripture today. 
Well, the less important marriage comes in our society, the, the, more, um, the more we take marriage for granted or the more we treat it as a, as a temporary kind of thing, the more important it becomes for us as, as followers uh, of Jesus. So, um, so let's talk about marriage as, uh, as, as followers of Jesus. There's three things I want to talk about here. The, the first one is that marriage is to be a picture of Jesus and, and the church. Right, so um, so marriage is a it is a permanent thing. Marriage is important for the Christian because it's supposed to be a picture of Jesus and the church, um, and and others are supposed to be able to look at that and 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 be able to see the relationship between Jesus and His bride, the church, in that. So love and sacrifice and commitment, and so what what I would say is that marriage is bigger than just husband and wife or kids. It's, it's more important that it has a bigger meaning than that. And, and, and sometimes we treat it as just, you know, right, this legal thing that I can get out of as easy as I got into it, um, which, by the way, if you've ever been through a divorce, you know that is not true at all. <laughs> way more difficult to get out of it than it is to get into it. Um, but, but that marriage is this picture of love and sacrifice and commitment that Jesus has for his church in that, in that relationship. The, the second thing is that um, marriage is a commitment that distinguishes followers of Jesus from the world. Now, I, I don't have to tell you the statistics because you've heard them over and over. Since I was a, a kid in high school, I've heard the statistics. The statistics for uh, Christian marriages and non-Christians marriages are the same, about 50% end in divorce. So it's not... Um, the same. But when you look at Scripture, and what's what we're talking about, right? We're, we, we want the parts of our lives to line up and to, and to mirror Scripture. And so in the Bible, marriage is a commitment, it's a covenant that distinguishes followers of Jesus from the world. And so we talk about at church making present the kingdom of God in our lives. And what that means is that we live according to kingdom principles. And so not only is marriage is a picture of, of Jesus and the church, but through the commitment and the covenant of, of marriage, there is to be a distinction from the rest of the world. We're going to see that as we talk today about, uh, as we go back and we look at Israel and God's command to Israel regarding marriage. Um, three, the best in environment, marriage is the best environment in which to raise adults who look and love uh, like Jesus. Now, um, if you've been through a divorce, I, I, I realize that, that this is probably painful. And, and I understand that. And I, and I want to be sensitive to that. I want to I extend grace to you. But, but I also want to say that b because this is the norm or because it's painful does not mean that we shouldn't deal with it and we shouldn't talk about it and we shouldn't go, here's the standard, even if we don't me measure up to it all the time. And so I recognize that you may want to um, dismiss this idea of, of marriage. You, you may want to argue it because you've suffered in, in your marriage. You've gone through the difference. You've experienced abuse or, or something else in, in your marriage. And so I'm not taking that into account here, okay? I'm, I'm not saying uh, we're just not going to talk about all the what-ifs that happen in, in marriage, um, and, and so what often happens when we talk about it, but, but preacher, you don't know what my situation was like. And I, and I don't. 
I don't. I haven't been in your shoes. I haven't walked it. I don't know what, what it's like. I'm just saying, I'm just saying this is the picture that we get um, from Scripture. This is the best case scenario for marriage. And, and while marriages do end for a whole lot of different reasons, today, many more marriages end, I think, because of convenience or outside influence than a really serious issue within the marriage. It's become so commonplace and so natural that if you go to work and you are struggling in your marriage and you do what we all do, you go to work and you go, oh man, I just, I'm struggling, it's really, you know, he's really making me mad, or she's really, um, it's really hard to live with. Nine out of ten people that you meet who are not followers of Jesus are going to say something like, why don't you just leave? You deserve better. You deserve to be with somebody who loves you and cares about you. You deserve to be with somebody who treats you the way you deserve to be treated. And, and one of the things I've learned in my life is that I deserve to be treated way worse than Andrea treats me. And, and my guess would be the same is probably true for you. We have this idea that we're, that, like, I'm an I'm a easy person to live with. You are not. I, I don't live with you, and I'm just going to tell you, you are not easy uh, to, to live with. Um, so my, my purpose today is not, is not to condemn anybody if you've been divorced or you're struggling or maybe you're even thinking about it today. That's not the intent. The intent is to cur- encourage you to believe and to work for something, something better. We can't settle for the outcomes of society. We have got to strive for the standards of, of Scripture. And I think a lot of times in the church, we settle for the outcomes of society. We go, well, this is normal. This is normal b- behavior. And, and I say that because I've seen it. Christian young people growing up in, in the church, and, they, and they've been, you know, they've heard talk about, and, and yet what do we do? We look like the rest of society. Well, the only way I'm going to know if we're compatible, me and this person I'm thinking about, maybe someday marrying, maybe not, it depends on if we can work things out. We probably should just live together first so we can decide. And, and let me tell you, I, to this to this day, I've been a pastor now for, I don't know, 25 years or something. I have never met a couple that lived together and didn't sleep together. Just hadn't happened yet. Uh, maybe someday I'll come across a couple who go, yeah, we live together, but we stay in separate rooms and we just avoid all of that stuff. Yeah, I mean, I give you a half a day. Like, it just doesn't work, right? I mean, it just can't. It can't. Because we're, we're human, right? We're, and like it just doesn't, it doesn't work. So as followers of Jesus, we can't just go, well, this is what society does. This is what society expects. And so or, I'm, this is just what I'm going to do. We have to strive for the standard of Scripture. And so at every stage of humanity's existence, God has affirmed marriage. Every stage, every step of our hu- existence God has affirmed marriage. And we've got a bunch of scripture, and so I'm going to try and get through that um, relatively quickly. So this is in the beginning. Genesis chapter chapter 2, we're talking here. Out of the ground, God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man. Adam had already been created. 
to see what he would call them and then whatever the man called them, uh, that was its name. And, and he gave names to all the land stock, the, the birds of heaven, every beast of the field, every, named every animal. But for Adam, there was not found a helper. Now, why did God do this? Why did God give Adam the ability to name all of the animals? Because he wanted Adam to see that there was no other creature on the face of the earth that was compatible to him, that would fit, that matched him and who he was. That's why God did this. So Adam wouldn't go, well, uh, Eve's good. Maybe there's something better out there. This is, this is the point. And so Adam gets to the end. He's seen all the cre- cre- creatures that God has made. And he's like, yeah, God, but what, there's nobody else like me. There's nothing like that. Who is there for me? And so there was not found a helper for him, and so God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, God took one of his ribs, and, and the language, the Greek language is that essentially that God took a handful of, it's not, he didn't just surgery a rib out, right? It, the, the, the Greek language, the Hebrew language is that he took a handful of Adam, a rib, so he got bone, he got uh, flesh, he got muscle, he got um, veins and, and blood, and sinew and ligament, all of the things that make up a human body, he got in that handful. And from that, he created Eve. He closed up the place, the rib that God had taken from man, he made into a woman, he brought her to the man, and he said, wow, this, finally, this is, I could spend some time with her, is basically what, what he does, a paraphrase. Uh, she's going to be called, whoa, man, because she, she hot. Uh, therefore, I, this is a good, therefore, we go, it, it, you're right, whenever you see the word therefore, you have to say, what's that therefore? Therefore, all of this stuff. Adam didn't find anybody out in the world that matched him, and then God created Eve, and then Adam was like, yeah, God, hand, round of applause. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, let me ask you this. How many people were on earth at this point? Some of you are like, is this a trick question? Two, Adam and Eve. Were there mothers and fathers for Adam and Eve? No. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. And Adam and Eve were like, "Mm, what? Who's that? Okay, now I'm oversimplifying it here, but but you, you get the idea. Before there were fathers and mothers, this was said. This was the plan is what I'm, is what I'm getting at. And, and you will hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And so God makes two people out of one person, which is, which is cool. And then marriage affirms that the first couple in this perfect union that existed with them in the garden in the beginning, this beautiful plan of, of God, remember it says, like the very next thing is, they were naked and they felt no shame. Woohoo! On board with that. They are excited about that. What God spent a short time doing, making two from one, 
He then says, you too will have the joy of spending a lifetime learning how to come back to one, which I think is pretty cool. So God takes one and he makes two, and then he says the purpose and the plan of marriage is that you too will learn how to become one again. I think that's pretty neat. When God called out Israel to be his people, um, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, those verses, when he called Israel out to be his people, to be in a covenant relationship with him, to represent him to the rest of the world. God said to the people of Israel, you're going to be a nation of priests that will represent me to the rest of of the world. He gave them a lot of rules and and there were a lot of expectations. We've talked about this, the Ten Commandments and the 613 other uh, rules that they had to follow. And they were all specific and specially designed, those rules, to set apart Israel from every other nation in Israel. In the world, and so there's rules about um, what you can eat, what you can wear, how you're to live, how you're to treat strangers. I mean, there's rules for everything, so that Israel as a nation didn't look like every other nation around them. They were they were set apart. They were called out. They were supposed to be different, and so they, they were supposed to be ritually and spiritually and relationally and functionally in their nation different than every other nation around. So their rules about marriage were different from the other nations around them as well. And so up to this point in in human history, men were like at the top of the food chain. If if you were a woman in that culture and in that day, you you had very, very little um, rights, opportunities. You you could not, um, in, in many cases, you could not speak in public. Um, you could not own land. You, like voting was like not even not even heard of. Um, like you you were if you were a woman you were property of your husband like the children that you that you bore and and you really only had two responsibilities. Your first and foremost responsibility as a woman was to obey and please your husband. The way that you pleased your husband was obeying your husband. So obey was number one. Number two was make babies. Those were your two, two jobs in, in the relationship, um, to obey your husband and to make children. And if you didn't do that as a woman, um, he would just go find another woman who would do that, and, and he would just get rid of, of you. And, and so in, in, in most societies of the day, the, the man was, was, was it. Like anything that he said in the house, like that, that goes. Um, and, and so men were free to have as many sexual partners that they, as they wanted, while the wife was expected to be faithful. And if she wasn't faithful to her one husband, then she could be killed. Even today, like, like we look at that and we go, oh my goodness, that's horrible, it's barbaric, how could they ever, you know. But, but look, even today... In some Middle Eastern countries, go do some study uh, in Saudi Arabia, women are treated today much the same way. The, the, the male guardian idea in Saudi Arabia is, is horrible. And so sometimes we, we look, I think people want to look at the Bible and go, oh, that's just backwards and all of those horrible things. That the, but by, like people are still doing this today. They're still living like this today in some parts of, of the world. 
And and so um, God's rules about marriage and men and women, they seem kind of barbaric based on today's standards, but they were revolutionary and quite controversial in their day. The the danger that we have um, in reading the Bible now is um, this, this word called ethnocentrism. And um, it's, a, it's a big word, and so I didn't know it. I had to look it up. Uh, ethnocentrism um, it means viewing other ethnic or cultural groups through the lens of one's own ethic or culture, ethnic or cultural setting. So when we read the Bible, we often read the Bible through the lens of our own experience. And, and we look at things about marriage and we go, oh my goodness, that's terrible. How could they? Or we read the stories about how God told the Israelite people to go and wipe that nation like off the face of the earth. And we go, oh, that's terrible. How could you do it? But you got to understand that that was the culture of the day. And if Israel did not do that to their nation neighbors, their nation neighbors would have done that to them. That was how they ruled. That's how they functioned. The hi- uh, to highlight this point in, in, in marriage, um, uh, marriage in Israel, I want to look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. This one's the shortest thing. Uh, you shall not commit adultery. Does anybody know where that comes from? Exodus 20, 14? Ten commandments. Do you know which one this is? No, I'm going to tell you. It's the seventh. Marriage was so important to God that the seventh commandment is don't commit adultery. Why? Because marriage is important. The idea of marriage, the concept of marriage is so important that God said, don't violate it by cheating on your spouse with other people. And he wrote it in the Ten Commandments. That's the big ten, right? You can't get more on the nose than, than this. Marriage and the sanctity of marriage was so important that God puts it into the covenant relationship that he has with his people. And, and people of his day, I'm, I guarantee you, they were freaking out. Because adultery or sexual intimacy with somebody outside of your marriage, somebody you're not married to, was a huge part of the Israelite way of life and every other nation around them. When you read in the, in the Bible about Asherah poles or high places or the worship of Baal, What you need to understand is that a huge part of the worship of those other gods and virtually every other other god, false god in the known world at the time, there was a huge sexual aspect to that. And and when you would go to worship, you would go um, to a a free for all, uh, what is that, 60s, 50s key party, Um, 40s, I don't remember what it was, before my time. Uh, But that's like what it was. That they had shrine prostitutes, and, and they got to a certain age, a woman got to a certain age, and she worked here. It was, it was a horrible situation. And, and so this was really a case of everybody's doing it, pun intended. Um, and, and, it, and it doesn't get any better over the next several uh, hundred or thousand years. Uh, and then we get to Mark chapter 10. Here's what it says. The Pharisees came up. And in order to test Jesus, they asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now remember, Exodus 20, 14 says don't commit adultery. Now they're saying, is it it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? This is how Jesus answered. 
uh, what did Moses command you? Well, Moses said that a man could write his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was extremely common, and he didn't have to jump through any hoops. He just basically said, uh, she looked at me wrong and didn't have dinner on the table when I came home. Here you go. And they literally would send her away with nothing. She got no, no money, no help, no nothing. Just leave and, and go away. It's a terrible situation. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, we go way back to Genesis, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast or cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. They're no longer two, but they're one. And so what God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, here's the part I like. In the house, so that they, they were out talking, they come into the house, the disciples, his closest people, the guys who were supposed to get it spiritually, they asked him again, and they were like, um, Jesus, remember when you were out there and you were talking about the certificate of divorce and sending your wife away and how you weren't really supposed to um, d do that? Uh, remember you were, you were saying that, um, wh what did you mean? And he says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits. Now, a woman could not, at this point, a woman could not divorce her husband. He could beat her. He could do anything to her. She could not div divorce him. Um, but So Jesus is speaking of a, this t a time when that might happen. And if she marries another, she commits adultery. Now, th this is really... Um, this is really interesting because we have to go, why did, the, why did the disciples go back to this issue and ask Jesus to clarify what he said? Remember when you told that guy that, that Moses gave, told you to give a certificate of divorce, but that's not the way God in, intended? What did you mean? The reason the disciples asked this is because they can't believe what they're hearing. They're like, like this is like I've never heard anything like this before. So, so here's the here's the idea. The disciples actually say to Jesus in in Matthew when Matthew records what just happened, the, he records the disciples saying, "Then why would anybody get married?" Okay, so think about it. the disciples who were supposed to be the most spiritual people at the time. They're following Jesus. You're the king. You're the rabbi. I'll follow you wherever. And they're going, look, if I can't have sex with other people outside of my marriage without having that be adultery, which I know is wrong because it's one of the Ten Commandments, I just won't get married. They did not say, I will just stop having sex with a bunch of people. They said, I just won't get married so I can keep doing that. Do you realize how messed up that is? I, you're like, uh, I just, I don't, like, that's just crazy. I just don't, uh, under, I don't understand it. As we keep reading the New Testament, things don't get much better. Jesus has died and he's risen again and the disciples are out and they're, they're preaching and they're teaching. They're talking about Jesus. People are coming to know Jesus. They're surrendering their lives to him. And these little house churches are popping up all over the, the world at, at the time. It starts in Jerusalem and then it builds out from there in every direction. In every town they go to, there's these little house churches. 
And one of the things that happened in, in the New Testament, according to Jesus' teaching, is that, is that men and women now have equal spiritual footing. And so, so Jesus, Scripture is saying, God looks at men and women the same. And, and so this patriarchal society that you've been living in was not God's intent. It was not God's plan. You're supposed to be, you're supposed to be equal. And I preached about this last year, if you want to go back and, and, and watch those on, on the website, because I would contend that this idea that, that men are supposed to be, that it's our role to be the spiritual and leader head of the house, I, I would challenge that a little bit. I think that in marriage today, and in the, in the way the New Testament talks about it, that it really is to be a partnership between husbands and wives, that there will be no point in time where I can go to my wife and say, you must do this because I'm the man and God put me in charge. I have just violated the law of marriage for God, which husbands love your wives and give yourself up for her like Christ did the church. By asserting my authority and telling her she must submit to me, I've just violated the law to love her. So I, I, we, can, we can talk about that later. Anyway, we have these churches popping up. Men and women, now women are not silenced. They are able to talk. They're able to speak in public. Times are changing. The church is changing of the day. And what happened is these churches begin to pop up and women, because women were kept out of all spiritual things, even for Judaism up to this point, women are now coming and they're like, hey, I want to be involved and I have questions and I want to talk and, and, and want to have conversation about this stuff. And so in these house churches, the, the women, because they had been silenced for so long, they're monopolizing the conversation now. And they're asking all of these questions because they've never been given the opportunity to ask them before. Women were not trained in the Torah. They were not educated academically. Only men were allowed to do that. And so the men already knew that stuff. So you got all these women in church, and they don't understand how Jesus fulfills um, the, the, the promises, the prophecies of the Old Testament, all that. They're asking questions, and they're trying to understand what's going on. And the problem is that men didn't like that. And so men were not coming to these house churches because the women were talking and monopolizing the conversation so much. And the women and the men in society, that was like, I'm not going there. Right? It's like a, it's like a non-church person walking into church and we talk about, like Tristan did, eating, uh, drinking the blood and eating the body. Like, no thank you. I'm, I'm out. Right? And so these men would come to these house churches and they would leave because it was so contrary to culture of the day. And so the, the disciples in the rest of the New Testament have to kind of pull back. And, and, and that's why Paul says, um, listen, ladies, when you come into the house church, if you have questions Wait until the service is over and ask your husband to, to fill you in, to give you the context of what was being talked about, because you're, it, it's, it's too much in this church setting. So, so take it out. Okay, that's the, that's the basis for all of that stuff happening. Ephesians 5, here's where we're going to wrap it up here. This is how Ephesians 5 verse 21 starts. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Um, or your translation might say, submit to each other or one to another. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its 
its Savior. Now, you might go, well, preacher, that's exactly opposite of what you just said. I don't think it is. Because God created man first, and then he created Eve. Eve ate the fruit, and then she gave it to to her husband. Um, If if I were uh, a worse person, I would say that um, she used her feminine wiles to get him to do it. But that's not really true. I think Adam looked at her, and he was like, hubba hubba. And, and then he was like, here's the law of God, and then here's my wife with this fruit dripping down from her mouth. What am I going to choose? Remember, she's naked. And so he's like, duh, give me the fruit, right? So, um, so then what happens? God comes and says, all right, here's the punishment for your sin, and he, and he, and he punishes womankind, and he punishes mankind, and he punishes the serpent, but, but what does he say to the woman? Your desire is going to be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, I don't think that was God's intention. I think it was God knew the reality, because what's happened for the last 10,000 years? Man has ruled over woman. Okay, so I, I think when he talks about being the head, he's talking about creation order here. Husbands were created, men were created first, then, then women. Uh, so, uh, the body as himself and its savior, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. This picture, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. The word love is translated agapao. It's the same word we've been talking about throughout this series. Christ had agapao for the church, and so he gave himself up for her. Remember the motive uh, and the movement toward, and then the material, he gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So Jesus is working hard in the midst of our failure and sin and arrogance and whatever to present us well to his father and 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 he's saying paul's saying husbands you should work hard to present your wife well in spite of any flaw she might have to present her well to the world in the same way just as jesus loves the church and gave himself up for her working hard to make her beautiful to god In the same way, husbands should agapao their wives as their own bodies. Because he who has agapao for his wife loves himself. Amen to that. Right? If if I want a better life, I'm going to love my wife better. Uh, So, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes, cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore... A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. We go back to Genesis chapter 2. And the two separate shall become one flesh. Now, here's the good part. This mystery is profound. He says, look, this mystery, this thing about marriage and husbands and wives and how they interact and how they learn to become one again, it's a profound thing, which means it's difficult, right? Profound things are difficult to handle and to understand. But he says, I'm, uh, um, I am referring to Christ 
and the church. He says, it's a profound thing, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, it doesn't lessen the fact that each of you should love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respect her husband. And so look at the um, progression here. In the beginning, Adam and Eve were one. They became two. And God's intention from that early day was that Adam and Eve would spend eternity in the garden. This is back in Genesis. Learning to love one another as they wove their lives together into a beautiful tapestry. And at the end of a millennia, they would have become one. That was God's plan in the garden. An eternity of Adam and Eve learning how to become one. And then sin entered the picture. And Adam chose Eve because of her personality and her body. Adam chose Eve over God, and they were kicked out of the garden. And instead of learning how to become one in a perfect environment without fear or struggle or jealousy or self-consciousness, Adam and Eve now had to learn how to become one amid struggle and pain and fear and lust. But God's plan and purpose for marriage to becoming one has never changed. That's what I want you to see today. God's plan and purpose for marriage has never changed. It's always been the same. So here's what happens whenever a pastor preaches about the importance of marriage in church. Everybody wants to personalize what's being talked about to their own unique experience. Well, what about my situation? You don't know what I've been through or what I've what I've gone through. You can't expect me to stay in my, I mean, you realize other people get out easy, but you can't expect me to stay in my marriage situation. And I have literally heard this, God released me when I prayed, so it's okay for me to leave um, my marriage. I want you to listen um, carefully. I, me, Corey, I will not be held responsible for your marriage. I will not be held responsible for your marriage, for what you do in it or what you do with it. When I get to heaven, God is not going to go, well, (laughs) this couple in your church, they got divorced or this happened or that happened and you're responsible. I'm not going to be held responsible. And so I am not telling you, you must stay in your marriage, your abusive marriage or whatever it is that you have going on. I'm not telling you, you must stay in there. I'm not telling you that because I'm not held responsible for it. I'm, I'm not telling you, you have to stay in your marriage. I'm not telling you, you should leave your marriage, whatever excuse or reason that you have. What I am telling you today is that as a follower of Jesus, who is our King, if you're a follower, you must consider what God says and what he wants and not just your own desires and feelings. And not just in marriage, but in every aspect of our lives. I'm telling you that if you want to get out of your marriage, you will find a way, an excuse, a reason. And you'll find somebody eventually, some pastor or some person who will tell you how you deserve more, you deserve to be loved, and you have the right to find it in the arms of another person. I'm also telling you that feeling loved, my personal feeling love, has never been a qualification of agapao love, the agapao love of God. 
Bible didn't talk about how I need to feel loved. It talks about love being a commitment and a sacrifice. And it's a struggle sometimes. I'm sure that if God would have remained in covenant love, covenant relationship with us, only when he felt love from us, that relationship would have never gone any farther. Right? I mean, if God only loves us and stays in a saving relationship with us, when he feels love from us, would he still be in that relationship with us? No, absolutely not. Because every day I don't show love to God. I'm telling you that if you are determined to stay in your marriage, you can often find a way. And I'm saying that followers of God have never been told to mimic the behaviors or the characteristics of the world around us, especially in circumstances where our behavior is an example of a much, much larger God truth. So, marriage, should you choose it, is good and it can be good but celibacy if you choose it is good but God's plan and purpose for marriage has always been one man one woman one sexual partner for one lifetime period like that that's it you don't pass go you don't get two hundred dollars you don't like like, that's it. And so, um, if you are divorced, if you've been divorced, or if at some point in your life you're going to have to go through that, I want you to know today that God does not hate you. That God is not disappointed in you because, because you've had to go through that. He understands and he loves us in spite of the things that we do. But we also can't pretend like it's not a big deal. God loves you, and he wants the best for you, and he wants you to experience the best he has for you. But that best will always be experienced when you follow his ways. And, and so you can't do anything about what's happened in your life previous. And my guess is you've probably spent way too much time already worrying about it and thinking about it and struggling with it. And so I, I, I just, you can give that to God and let that go. But you can also determine today that this is the way I'm going to move forward. This is the way I'm going to function now in my life and in my relationships. And I'm going to follow God's way to the best of my ability. I'm not going to push God's word aside. I'm going to let it change me and let it work on me. Let's pray. God, thanks for the overwhelming love that you have for us, that unconditional love that, that honestly only you can really show. God, we may try, but we fail over and over again. And so, um, Father, we need you. As we talked last week, we can't love the way you have called us to love without you. 
Without your help, without the Holy Spirit working in us, we can't love like you want us to. And, and so God, just help us to um, help us to experience your love so that we can share that love with others. And God, I, I, I realize that this is a difficult subject and it's, it's tender and it's painful at times. And, and there might even be folks here today who, are, who have been contemplating, even this week, been contemplating divorce. And so God, I pray that you would give wisdom and, and guidance and, and help. Um, and and that, that God, you, you'd just be a, a voice of reason. That we wouldn't take looking like the world as an okay thing, but, but that we would do our best to follow your ways. And when we follow your ways, we'll always be in your will. Father, again, thanks for loving us. Thanks for loving me in spite of my failure and sin. Help me to do better. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, um, next week, uh, we are going to wrap up this series, and we're going to look more closely at marriage. What we were going to do today, we're going to do next week. And so I want to talk to you about marriage from the standpoint of houses in, or rooms in your house. Living room, dining room, kitchen, bedroom, bathroom. It's, it's, it'll be good, it'll be fun, and you'll enjoy it. So, so come back next week. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to Real Life Live. Our hope and prayer is that the time you've spent with us has left you encouraged and challenged in your faith. It may have also left you with some questions or maybe wondering how all this faith stuff works. So we want to help you with that. Head over to reallifecc.us for a few different ways we can connect. We're thankful you joined us today and want to extend an invitation for you to join us in person at our current home in El Dorado, Kansas at the Civic Center, 201 East Central on Sundays at 10 a.m. We hope you'll keep tuning in and growing in your faith to look more like Jesus every day. See you next time.